Hey guys, before we get started here, I just want to remind everybody that the Float Tank Solutions survey is out, the industry survey for everybody can fill out information on their float tanks. It's our biggest, best, reliable source for information on the float industry. Please go to floattanksolutions.com forward slash survey or go to artofthefloat.com to the show notes page for this bonk episode and uh, we have a link for it there as well. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Art of the Float, where float centers thrive, our weekly podcast where we share our stories of starting and running our float centers. We love it when you join us as we work together to raise our education level on building, marketing, and running our float centers. As always, you can find us at Art of the Float on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and at artofthefloat.com to find show notes, links, pictures from every episode, all of that good stuff. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Dylan. Again, I'm, I'm here by myself this evening. Amy is still working on Float Alchemy and getting that sweet, sweet business open, despite all the incredible hurdles that she is overcoming to get it open. It's still taking up a lot of her time, and we wish her our best. I've also got Brian Van Pesky behind the scenes here, helping us out producing the show. Uh, before we get started and introduce Richard Bonk, who I'm really excited to talk to about um, not only his history in the industry, but also some really interesting uh, work with dreams, lucid dreaming in the float tank. And I think uh, he might even correct me on that. It gets a little bit more specific than that and more nuanced. So I'm really excited to talk about all of that. Uh, first, I want to mention the float conference, which is actually coming up faster than you think. It's August 18th and 19th. Uh, be sure to get your tickets now. Uh, summer is here. It's time to start planning for these events. And the float conference, if you're in the float industry, is one that you absolutely need to be a part of. It's so special. It is big. It's a big party, as Graham and Ashcon have said on the show previously. It's basically just a giant party, uh, but I think they were being a little silly. They, it's also, there's a lot more to it than that, including some incredible speakers, incredible wealth of information, and a lot going on on Friday. If you do show up for Friday, uh, there's just so many different events that you can show up for there as well, uh, which is really cool. Uh, hopefully, Art of the Float will be hosting a little little event there as well, uh, as, as we tend to do, roundtable discussion. And beyond that, uh, just go to floatconference.com to learn more about the speakers, look at past speakers, and of course, get your tickets. Well, let's see here. I'm a little bit behind on talking about this. I, I talked about my inline heater, uh, I think it was a few weeks ago now, and it just kept re coming back up in my thoughts. Basically, as I've been driving around running errands, it keeps coming up this idea of uh, this inline heater issue that I had, it uh, it kind of stumped me. I was really worried we were going to have to replace this beast of an inline heater. It, uh, it has two two elements inside of it, and it's a it's kind of a big deal. But as I mentioned on a previous episode, you know, as soon as salt water touches it, the void is uh, excuse me, the warranty is void. So uh, I knew that I was kind of on my own with this thing. There was no just swapping it out and saving any amount of money. So I had to really figure out what was wrong with this thing and. I'm not going to bore you guys with every detail about how I narrowed it down, but that really was what I did, was just really seeing all the different things of, what if I do this, what happens? What if we do that, what happens? So what if there is, what if the pump is running? Uh, what if the pump is not on and we turn it on? What if, um, let's see here, uh, how long does it take after the pump is turned off that the issue happens? Uh, what if it's up to temperature? Does this happen when the pump is running? Uh, reset buttons. There are all these different kind of modifiers that you can put onto the system 
and it would either cause the issue or it wouldn't cause the issue. And so I was able to narrow it down to um, it detecting flow. So if there was no flow, um, it still thought that there was flow going through the pump. It would overheat, it would turn itself off, and then we were kind of out of luck. And we had a workaround, which involved turning off a circuit breaker, which is not the workaround you ever want to have. Like that's When you're that close to the source of electrical, you've got a bigger issue on your hands. Um, but, but we did figure it out, or I, I figured it out and got the replacement part and everything relatively quickly, and that was great. But the, what that makes me think of is the importance it is for us individually, but in my opinion, even more importantly, as you might want to step away from your business, is training your employees on identifying issues and how to identify an issue, whether it be with a float tank and electrical, plumbing. I mean, there are all these different things that come up within our business, and just this really... Um, almost kind of simple binary way of figuring out a problem is, you know, keeping everything the same and then you change one thing and, and does that cause an issue or tracing it lot down the line? Is it, is it a light bulb that is out or is it a circuit breaker that's not working? And tracing it from the light bulb to the light switch to a junction box back to the breaker or wherever, however points of contact that might be. But, um, Something that I discovered is that wasn't necessarily how my brain worked before I opened a float center. I mean, maybe to some degree, but I think it's really refined how my brain works <laughs> since uh, there's a million things that can go wrong in a float center. Um, so not only do you need to learn how to do that, but if you ever want to go on vacation, if you ever want to step away from your business for any amount of time, you have to have trust in your employees and and. Part of that is empowering them with this knowledge of just how to troubleshoot, basically, starting from where the issue is and going back to as, as you know, close to the source as possible of what, what this problem could be. Uh, and when I say the source, that I guess in this case, the, the uh, junction box is, is what I'm thinking, or the uh, circuit breaker, I should say. So um, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a vague concept, and it's be, it'd be a little hard to teach in a classroom but at the same time, I think with staff meetings, with issues that do come up, they can be used as educational pieces to pass on to your employees to go, how do I take care of this situation? When something goes wrong, how can I bring this as far along as possible knowledge-wise and understanding before I pick up the phone and call an owner? Because I, I can get phone calls all day long because problems happen all day long. The more that they're educated and empowered, and I, when I say they, I mean employees, the more issues can get taken care of without you ever even knowing, or you get a follow-up email to know that an issue happened, or just a, hey, can you order this part, um, because we used a backup part already, something like that. So um, also, if they haven't figured it out, and they call me up, and they say, you know, I've done these five things, I can then use that. I can decipher from there or go, okay, can you try this or that rather than starting from com complete scratch and not understanding. So I would just uh, put it out there to everybody. I know it's a little bit of a vague of a, of a concept, uh, but to, to learn how to, to troubleshoot all the different issues that happen in the float tank, uh, excuse me, float center, uh, because whether it's electrical, plumbing, all these different things, it really does come down to a linear line of potential issues and a binary system of testing to get your way from the issue to figuring out what the part is that's wrong or whatever it is that's causing the, the malfunction. All right, that's all I've got to say about that. Uh, before we bring on Richard here, I do want to thank Escape Pod for sponsoring the show. EscapePodTank.com is where you want to go. They make some super awesome, funky float tanks starting below $9,000, which is pretty phenomenal for any float tank 
operational center. Uh, that's just a great price to start at. Uh, they also have the Earth and the Aphelion float tanks, some really cool float tanks, very spacious float tanks, I should add as well. And of course, as I always want to mention, you're getting in a relationship with Jeremy, who is awesome. Hey, he's just a really cool guy uh, who's, who's absolutely fun and adorable, but also he uh, provides incredible customer service uh, 24 by 7. I don't know when he gets sleep in, but he seems to manage and seems to just absolutely deliver phenomenal customer service. And that I have heard from everybody. And I, you don't really get that about any business. Uh, I mean, there's always some complaints, but Jeremy's responsiveness has never been in question. He's he's also in it, you know, for the right reasons. It's really cool. EscapePodTank.com is where you want to go to check out his tanks and get in contact with the guy. <laughs> All right, Richard, welcome to the show. How are you doing this evening? Yeah, thanks, Dylan. I'm I'm doing good. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so excited. I almost don't even know where to start because there's so much so much to talk about and pick pick your brain with all all sorts of uh, bits of information. I I want to um, maybe set the table here for our audience and let's uh, let's go back a few years, not not too far back, <laughs> but <laughs> but when you when far. you what's that? It'll be far. Yeah. <laughs> it's all relative, right? Um, how did you get into the floating um, community? How did it, how did it all start, and where did where did it take you? Yeah, so uh, in the, the mid nineteen eighties, I was working at the Medical College of Ohio in, in Toledo, the sensory deprivation capital of the world, as they say, <laughs> uh, with uh, John Turner, who was uh, my employer at the time, and hmm. then Tom Fine, who was his colleague. So uh, when we weren't running participants, study participants, and medical students through the float protocol, I was able to, to use the tank. And uh, there was a, uh, a colleague of mine who knew I was interested in meditation, so she said, well, you really should try the float tank. So I did. So the, first, the very first time I got in the float tank, as soon as I lay down, settled in, I thought, well, this is a perfect environment for meditation because... Yeah. Two of the things that we struggle with in meditation, sensory distraction and physical discomfort, are mm. immediately gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's just like you are at the baseline, you know, you can take off from there. So I really became enamored with the, with the tank and floating, and, and I was able to float maybe once or twice uh, a week for um, maybe a, a year or so there at the Medical oh, wow. College of Ohio. So, yeah, so I started... Uh, uh, earnestly floating and you know I was also meditating at the same time I was experimenting with uh, TM or transcendental meditation and mm -hmm. I had, had kind of minimal results from that but when I started floating it was like wow well this is what meditation is really all about oh, interesting. so uh, I found it very useful for meditation as well as uh, you know for physical recovery and just to, to help balance myself physically so I I um apologize if I misheard you here. Did you say that you had been practicing TM for about a year or you for about a year you got to float regularly? Well, I was probably practicing TM for, it might have been a year or so. And then uh, after I was introduced to the tank, yeah, I got to float pretty regularly at, at the medical college for a year or so. And uh, in that time period, I started having uh, spontaneously, besides having these experiences that were very meditative, I started to have these experiences that uh, were very different. And uh, for example, one of the first times I had the experiences, uh, it was, I had the experience, I was very, very deep 
in a relaxed state and, and spontaneous so that there was this um, uh, very, this, this vibrational sensation that kind of overtook me. It was very physical and, and it was kind of disturbing in a way because it mm. felt like it was expanding exponentially by the second. And I felt like I was either going to explode or something was going to shoot out of the top of my head. And so, of course, <laughs> there was that knee-jerk fear response, like, you know, oh, my God, what's happening? And yeah. so that would end the experience. But I was interested, like I said, in meditation and states of consciousness. So I thought, well, then, and it, this happened to me a couple of times. And so I hmm. thought, well, the next time this happens, I'm going to maintain a calm mental resolve and just trust that the experience will be okay, see where it takes me. So uh, besides the vibrational experience, it would also it would also be accompanied by strange sounds like a certain like bells or a fabric ripping and uh, and a sense of fear too. Like hmm. you know, like there like almost like that there were for lack of a better way to put it, like there were malevolent entities hanging out there and there was a kind of a fear response. Um, so when I decided to meet this head on, mm -hmm. like with equanimity, mm -hmm. so the experience started happening and, you know, that same sequence, uh, the sound, the vibration, the fear sensation, but I was able to maintain that calm mental resolve. And in, instead of the experience being aborted, uh, there was this sense of like the, the fear transformed into an energy um, that pushed me into and through a tunnel, like they talk in the uh, near-death experiences, oh, wow. to what was on the other side, a sense of like light, like they talk about the light, there was like light. And moving to that space, it was like a very pleasant, calm, equanimous space where I could decide what I wanted to do next. And uh, what, do you, what do you mean by decide what to do next? Well... When I was in the throes of this, whatever was happening, like this uh, entering this uh, this vibrational state, you know, there yeah. there there seemed to be there was a lot of um, kind of like a reactive patterns. Like I would assume, you know, your biopsychology is like saying you don't want to go there, so it's flipping all these switches to stop it. Yeah. But um, when I entered that the calm space there was no more of that kind of reactionary pattern. It was just calm. Yeah. So it was just like I had my full mental cognitive abilities so I could decide, you know, well, now I'm in this, this, this altered state, this alternate space, and what do I want to do now, you know? Yeah. So that really was like kind of the beginning of like starting to explore um, this, what, I, what I'm calling alternate waking state. Because sometimes they seemed more like um, dreams. They had dream content in it. Sure. So like lucid dreams, like being awake yeah. when you're in a dream. Other times it seemed more like out-of-body experiences or what the literature describes as out-of-body experiences. And they seem to be related. I think there's a spectrum where there, there's a relationship between them. Um, the lucid dreams are more dreamlike. There's dream imagery. They're less stable. Whereas the uh, OBEs, for lack of a better way to put it, because I don't know that, you know, that I'm going or anybody's going out of the body. Sure, it could be sure. a totally mental mental phenomenon. But it is more stable and it's more equivalent to normal waking reality. So the experiences in this oh, okay. OBE state are, for example, like it, like you could have 
a sensation that's equivalent to touching something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just as real as touching something, but you're not touching anything. And not only that, but I mean, you can have the experience of going through surfaces, like going through the surface of the tank and into the next room. And it feels different. You know, the, the old Samadhi with the vinyl and the vinyl liner would feel different than the, uh, the ones with fiberglass. And anyhow. Oh, so interesting. interesting. Very, yeah, very interesting and very convincing. And that really huh. woke me up to this idea that um, there are other states of consciousness that are equivalent to waking consciousness. Oh, interesting. Can, can I ask you, as one of those differences, the, um, um, there's a difference between imagining something and there's a difference between, like, say, a hallucination where you don't know that there's a difference in reality like um, you, you can think it's real, whereas like some imagery, you can know this isn't actually happening in front of me. Is that also something that switches between these two of when the out of body, the reality of it is this is happening? You know, that's a good question, you know, and because and I've thought about this a lot because it's like, well, how do you know that it's not something that you're imagining? And, um, you know, I, I kind of look at like it's on a, a bar graph, you know, it's just like it's when you're in the in this alternate waking state, the intensity level goes up so that it matches normal waking mm-hmm. reality. And in fact, it can supersede that sometimes. It can become even more intense. But also there is that, you know, the other bar would relate to um, stability and clarity. So there's a very big difference. Like people say, well, is it like, you know, visualization? You know, mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. no, I mean, yes, right. <laughs> in some ways, but no, because this, yeah. this experience is equivalent to normal waking reality. Right. It's okay. like visualization on steroids. I mean, it's like the <laughs> real thing. It's very convincing. Before we go too far, can we go back to you? Well, I'm assuming it wasn't Dr. Tom Fine tearing fabric and making noises outside of your float tank. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go into... It could have been. It could have been. He's <laughs> never admitted to it yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, my only, I want, I want to just talk about that experience just for another minute here, because I think that's pretty, rather profound, <laughs> you know, where we were able to just blow past it in conversation, but that seems really intense and profound, and um, for you to be experiencing this, um, it, well, let me tell you what my parallel to that is. Um, in martial arts, I've had the blood flow stopped uh, from going to my brain um, mm. and uh, be, being choked out uh, just to know what the experience is like and that you can pass through these states. And my body didn't want it to happen. Like uh, when you were talking about that, the, the vibration and the, the reaction of like the fear and not wanting to go there, for me, that was my body. Like it felt like my biology saying, no, this, this cannot happen. I would do my best to be calm and peaceful. And then my body would just violently say no and try to fight, fight this guy off. Right. Like, even though I wanted to be calm, um, you did actively stay calm through that. If, if this parallel is accurate, you managed to stay calm and and stay through that really scary portion, Mm -hmm. which then, uh, by the way, I should say led me to one of the most beautiful states I've ever had. (laughs) I mean, just, if it, yeah, I, I won't go into it now, but uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, does that parallel ring true to you, or my? Is that no, just that, on my side? I think that's a uh, that's an accurate parallel because at at first, as I had mentioned, like there was that natural, biological, psychological fear response. Yeah, okay. it was. I think you know, it, like the not only the body but my psychology was saying, no, you don't want to go there. And but, so, uh, how, how come your biology is saying no? <laughs> what's that? 
Um, so for me, my biology was saying no because it was, if you let this happen, we're done. We're out, off this game, right? <laughs> game yeah. over. Is that what your biology was saying as well? Or did it have a different reason for saying, no, don't, don't go through this. Wake up. Well, well, I think in a flotation tank, I mean, there's a, and, and this goes to, or partly to my theory of why flotation works, is because I think that there's an aspect of the mind that's vigilant because you're floating. It's just like, well, this is a unique environment. You know, I don't want to drown or I don't know what's right. going on. Yeah. So there's part of you that's going to main, remain vigilant for most of us. But there's all the, but because the float tank is so warm and nurturing and supportive it, it on, its, at, on the same, on the other hand, it's inducing very reliably this deep state of calm. Yeah. You know, and relaxation. So, yeah. so w what seems to be happening, why the, why the tank is so powerful is because it's, it's suspending you it literally and figuratively in between, you know, between sleeping and waking, mm -hmm. you know, between floating and sinking. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm thinking the combination of, of generating these two or triggering these two mind states is very potent. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think initially, I, th I think it was like the body saying, you know, well, if you don't have control, I mean, who knows what's mm, going to happen to you right, in this okay. water environment. And also beyond that, my, you know, the sense of self. And it's just like, well, it, what's happening to my sense of self? Am yeah. I dying, you know, or mm. am I going to be able to come back? So I think that's a, a very natural response. Yeah. However, when you put it that way, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. However, we can train ourselves to kind of overcome that natural response, and I that was the that was a key for me, is to realize that hey, I'll be okay, mm -hmm. and trust the process, and then that opens up a whole new world, you know, on the other side of that that biopsychological fear response. And I think, you know, I, I mentioned, like, I, I had the sense of, like, these malevolent entities. I mean, they could have been projections of my, my own psyche out there. But, I, sure. but part of me thinks that, that you know, in different uh, esoteric traditions, they talk about guardians, etc. And I think those are probably aspects of ourself hmm. that are kind of, you know, they're engaged. That the reason why they function in terms of fear is because they want to, or that aspect of self wants to protect us. So and I, and I don't know, but it seems like once once that they're engaged and and these aspects of the mind are re you know, are reassured, then they can contribute. Like I said, the and I didn't even think about this until we're talking now. But once those um, aspects of the psyche are satisfied, they can cooperate. You know, the fear. Oh, interesting. The palpable fear transformed into an energy that actually pushed me, <laughs> yeah. you know, into the space of equanimity. Beautiful. So uh, going back to your, your storyline here, the, the timeline, uh, you had a chance to float for a year um, very regularly. And by the way, were other people getting similar results from their floats? Were the people you're doing research on or anybody else? Not that I was aware of. I, I talked to John Turner a lot about this, and he says, well, why don't other people have these experiences? And what's your I don't answer? know. <laughs> you don't know. I don't know. I think there's something in terms of, you know, it may be our predisposition, our personality, or the yeah. fact that, you know, that I've been, was a meditator and sensitive and interested in those things. Mm -hmm. That may have been. But, I, you know, I could talk more about, you know, later the, the pilot study we're running to see if, you know, the, the technique that you'll ask me about 
is effective for other people, which it seems to be. So well, let's, you know, let's just dive in then. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so I was floating, like I said, about a year, year and a half at the Medical College of Ohio. But when they upgraded to a new system, they had one of the very early samadhis. And we to get uh, blood and, and blood pressure samples, we had a hole in a side yes. of the tank. I love that know, image. Anyhow, it put the <laughs> arm out. And um, so I was able to get that, that tank, the old black samadhi, in my apartment, a very small oh. basement apartment, when they upgraded. So I was able to float whenever they wanted to. And I thought, well, I don't need to sleep. I could just go into the tank, you know. Whoa. <laughs> but but uh, that didn't work. You know, I, and I think part of the reason is because the body needs to flip around mm-hmm. so that the lymph fluid is... Right. So that didn't work. However, you know, I was also, like I mentioned, I was interested in, in working with dreams. And I had been keeping a dream journal since I was 17 or so. And I still do. Wow. Um, but I was interested in inducing lucid dreams, and there was a dream researcher who's still around now and kind of like the pioneer in the field, Stephen Labarge, and he wrote a book on lucid dreaming and how to induce those. There was a technique he called the monomic induction of lucid dreams, and that basically was waking yourself up in the last third of your sleep cycles and kind of giving yourself like hip, self-hypnotic suggestions that when you go back to sleep, you'll remember that you're dreaming. Uh, so I had kind of minimal results with that but i had the float mm-hmm. tank in my apartment yeah and i was experiencing uh, experimenting with his techniques and one morning i um i got up because i was uh, on a work project that necessitated me to get up at four in the morning or something when i came back i went into the tank and it was like bam i had that that lucid experience again and i and it occurred to me well this is the missing missing ingredient <laughs> instead of going back to bed sleep in bed i'll go float and so um, I tried it the next day and it worked. And so from then on, it was about 80% um, effective for inducing oh, wow. um, lucid states of consciousness. And I talked to John Turner about it. I told him, well, I'm going to call this the alternate waking state induction technique or OSIT. And he said, oh, you should call it um, the alternate waking state induction method or awesome because <laughs> people will remember it. Yeah, know? it sells itself. So, yeah, <laughs> so we did. And so cool. that technique is um, uh, has been reliable for me. And, and I have, uh, way back then, it was at 80%. Now I've been floating for like three years at almost every Sunday morning for about hmm. three and a half to four hours. Hmm. Now the awesome technique is almost 100% for me. And not only do I have wow. a, a lucid event during that, but I have up to seven lucid events within a three and a half hour float. Sometimes that lucid space now is like a half of the time that I'm floating. So, uh, so I'm very happy with that. And in fact, yes. <laughs> so the people at Lieber, the Orient Institute for Brain Research, are saying, well, you know, you should really get like 20 to 30 people try your, your awesome technique on MC if it's effective for other people. And maybe we can do a, you know, honest to God study um, yeah. to see if this is effective for other people. So is that what you're doing? That's what what I'm doing. So if Whoa. you know if anybody in your audience uh, has a regular access to a float that could float early in mm-hmm. the morning, we'd love to have them as part of that pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be very cool because there's nothing out there that with that kind of level of efficacy for a set, for inducing and sustaining lucid dreams. Oh, that's so and there's cool. lots of people who are interested in that. 
and there's and I could go into like the potentials of lucid dreaming and these alternate waking states um, I, as well. But I was calling them alternate waking states again because sometimes they're lucid dreams, sometimes right, they're not. Right, and there's right. also <laughs> there, there's also the states of lucidity that are not dreams and not out of body type of experiences, and those are more like in line with um what the Tibetans call pure awareness, and what I've found. As those are very interesting and very potent, and it hmm. it seems like, for lack of a better way to put it, like I, since I've been doing this now for a long time, I can kind of, well, I can definitely watch myself enter this state where I would call it the dream matrix, and once, and I'm assuming that would be either very deep uh, theta and light delta. So I enter this dream matrix, and out of the dream matrix comes these dream lucid dreams. And as long as I stay in the dream matrix, lucid dreams will pop in and out. And not only that, but I can I can maintain that lucid lucidity in between the dreams. So and that's a very interesting state because it's like a state of pure awareness. It's like a state of like non-duality. Like in the dreams, you can watch the dreams. Of, can watch the dreams arise and you can either watch them or you can engage with them. You can, you can, there, you have a sense of a dream body and a dream ego. You can interact (laughs) with dream figures and a state in between. There is no activity like that except awareness. And then the dreams come and they come and then they go, they arise out of this dream matrix and they dissolve back into it. I feel like you're, on on the Starship Enterprise, walking between holodecks, you just get to walk in between right. these uh, these adventures going on. Except, you know, that's fantastical. But what's really going on in your brain between those, and what's left over between the dreams, is something very right. fascinating to me. Well, I was just at this conference uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, at presented by this organization called Promega. They're a very proactive. Uh, organization that's actually supporting research into the use of psychedelics for um, medical and therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, every year they have, it's called the International Forum on Consciousness. Again, it's in Madison. This year it was Means and Metrics for Detecting and Measuring Consciousness. Well, one of the main speakers is this uh, Christoph Koch, who is a a co-scientist along with uh, Francis Crick, the guy of DNA fame. So they had some big-name speakers there. But anyhow, they have a theory of consciousness that's one of the main theories of consciousness right now. It's called the information, Integrated Information Theory, I, IIT of consciousness. And it, you know, it, it goes at consciousness from the phenomenal, from phenomenologist's viewpoint. In other words, it's different than uh, traditional scientists who kind of look at the as consciousness is rising from the matter of the brain, reduct, mm-hmm. kind of like a reductionist perspective. But these guys are phenomenologists, so they're looking at consciousness and, and they're tracing it backwards. Where what are, what are the physiological correlates to these conscious experiences? Mm-hmm. So they have this theory and that predicts you know, how consciousness should arise and its effects. And he was, so he was giving his spiel and he talked about Oh, um, our theory predicts all of these uh, experiences, these phenomenological experiences of consciousness, except this one state. And he said, well, I was I was in a water tank in Singapore a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and I had this experience, like this experience that I just talked about, this non-dual state. Oh, and he says, wow. well, our theory doesn't account for that. Huh. 
So he said, boy, if we could find a way to see what's going on in the brain when this is happening, this would really give us some insight into consciousness. So, of course, that was my ticket into the into this group of scientists because they nice. were all interested. I said, well, I've been floating for, you know, 35 years. Oh, and so awesome. they quizzed me and they thought, uh, well, it would be really important if we could, you know, do what Justin Feinstein is doing, you know, and and see what's happening in the brain when these lucid states are occurring. Um, there was another guy there who was working with people who are in, you know, quote-unquote, vegetative states, and he said this would oh. be really important for his work, too. Oh, interesting. Um, so they all of these, like, really well-known named scientists in the area of consciousness were very interested in floating and the float experience. Wonderful. Um, just real quick, how, do, how does somebody reach out to you to get involved with this? Uh, well, I have a website, which is very antiquated, but I'm, <laughs> I'm hopefully going to get it up and going in a way that looks more professional. But it's just my name, www.richardbonk.com, mm-hmm. or through you, Dylan, you know, for email. By all um, means. Yeah. Uh, yeah, info out of the float. Uh, you can reach us, and and we can definitely send you to to Richard and his emails on his website as well. They can just go ahead and email you and and ask yeah. to be part of this. So um, back to the study portion, which is really exciting, by the way. Um, I I want to go two directions right now, but let's just stick with the actual brass tacks of it. You know, what are the um, what's the information or the data that you're collecting from people floating? Do do they journal? Are, are there particular questions that they're answering? Yeah, so How right now this... it's you know it's a more a, like a casual pilot, but so I okay. put together a set of questionnaires, uh, well, two questionnaires before and after, and and mm-hmm. also uh, one that's more kind of like general, just to get a sense of the demographics. So it yeah, it's basically you know before and after, and just getting a sense of like depending on on how they report the experiences before and after to get a sense of like if something different is going quote unquote different is going on there. And and if it's shown that that it, there are some commonalities, then we then it can become more formal. So right now it's pretty casual, um, but the people that I've run through, um, and actually I worked with Jeremy on some of these, um, so he's a, a good guy who's supporting what I'm doing as well. Jeremy, um, um, of uh, Escape Pod. Oh oh, <laughs> yeah. oh of course you are. Yes, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy would be part of this. Perfect. And uh, and Justin is also in, uh, kind of giving some guidance and encouragement awesome. on that as well. But our hope is that we can get uh, you know uh, the kinks worked out of that uh, wireless EEG, so we yeah. can see what's going on in the brain oh, yeah. while we're floating. Mm-hmm. So that would be my hope, and my my hope and my dream fantasy would be like, well, wouldn't it be cool to have like a float research slash retreat center, meditation float retreat center? where people could come like for, you know, a long weekend or an extended mm-hmm. period and actually experience these lucid states. Cause mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, not only if this, this happens, if this is effective for me, like why not train a community? And part of what I'm seeing is like, if people are like meditators, for example, so they're familiar with these states and have um, more vo- vocabulary to describe them. Oh, uh-huh. Um, that may be maybe the you know the demographic that I would be targeting, but I, I don't know. There are certain people I think that are that are probably more skilled at mm. accessing these states that have developed the skill, or other people that may be naturally able to access these states. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with the community, uh, that would be important in my 
mind because, uh, you know, people have these, like you say, phantasmagoric experiences floating, you know, whether they're straight or uh, whether there's another another factor involved oh, there. Uh-huh. But, uh, <laughs> and that's great. You know, it can be very uh, transformative. Um, however, you know, mm. it, I think the way that the mind works is we tend to want to create these cosmologies around, you know, one or two experiences. And I think if we had uh-huh. a community, well, we could kind of separate that out. We could separate out the individual experience from what's common and see what the causes and conditions to, that are going to stimulate these states of consciousness. Yeah. And then together, you know, as, a, as a, a trained community, we can, you know, quote unquote, map the mind, you know, like we can see, well, <laughs> uh, you know, the, these, this, these variables will, will yield this state of consciousness within this state of consciousness. There, there, there are, there are these phenomena that unfold, and, and, and the, this type of phenomena has this potential. For example, like I, I think that there's um, e- great healing potential in these uh, lucid states. Like you talked about in the beginning, the different difference between like imagining or visualization and these experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, what I found in, the, in these deep lucid states, as you think, you can actually create changes in the body that would be easy enough to verify. So it's not just like visualization, like, you know, and I, you visualize and you hope that things are getting better for you, but you can actually have, a, you know, you can actually measure a physiological response. So it's not just imagination. It's like you're accessing a state of mind where you have direct control over things that we don't normally have control over what, in our normal waking. What has led you to believe that that's possible? Uh, well, boy, uh... How can I go into it? It's like, um, uh, well, there's things like in the autonomic nervous system, like in, uh, I, I worked and lived at the Himalayan Institute for a while, and the, the Swami there was one of the, Swami Rama, who was one of the first subjects uh, at the manager clinic, one of the yogis who said, well, I could do things like I could stop my heart, and I could, mm. uh, on the same hand, raise skin temperature and lower skin temperature. And at that time, they said, well, that's not possible. Uh-huh. Um, but they, they wired him up and found out that he could do what he said he could do. And wow. so out of that came the science of biofeedback. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing that can happen while floating. I mean, people can learn that through biofeedback, but it can be an arduous process. Not everybody's going to be as skilled with doing that. But like in a float environment, you can automatically, I mean, you can very easily and well, float if you're in this lucid state you can change your your physiology that in a way that can be measurable and i and you know i guess maybe a more direct example like as a more when i was a younger person in my 20s i mean there in these in these lucid states um there's um uh your sense of uh, sensuality is very revved up as well as like your emotionality so i mean Mm -hmm. you could in theory well not in theory i mean this has been my experience you can create fantasies that are equivalent to normal waking reality like you know create a fantasy uh partner a fantasy lover and and that sort of thing that is every bit as convincing as in the normal waking world Um, so i'll let my wife know i need to float every morning right (laughs) but that's that's one easy way you know and that's both a (laughs) Uh, can be a trap, though, because it is such an easy, I mean, you, you enter the state and, and you can really rev up the, the sensual, like I said, like the, the sense of, of touch is equivalent to normal mm. waking reality. So you can create these fantasies that are very convincing. 
And that's very interesting, it has a lot of potential. However, it can also be uh, a trap because mm -hmm. it's just like, well, why would I want to go anywhere else when I can, <laughs> when I can create the most uh, pleasant, sensual experience for myself? But what I found is that there, there's, there's subsequently more um, refined levels. Like there's, mm -hmm. like in these, um, what I was calling again, like the, uh, more like the OBEs. Would, there would be like a second body. It would be kind of equivalent to your normal waking body, but it, but it would be less refined, but it would still be very okay. sensual and emotional, and it could move through like space, and it has a sense of time. It, it would be typically very stable com you know, compared to what dreaming would be. Sure. Um, but then above that seems to be something more refined, like a for lack of a better way to put it, like a mental body where your your sense of body kind of just dissolves and you ha still have consciousness and your cognitive mm -hmm. abilities, but no sense of, of body. It's like you're kind of moving through space and you have an integrity, but you don't have that kind of body. Um, well, now that every single one of our listeners wants to have this experience, uh -oh. can we? Yeah. I think you did talk about it a little bit, but um, can you walk people through the process that you've refined? Of I think you said it was about four a.m. Yeah. So, so, about, uh, so can you can we walk me through the whole Saturday night? I mean, you said you're floating Sunday, Sunday yeah. mornings. What is your the whole cycle of preparation look like for you? Yeah. So the night before, you probably you don't want to eat too late and, you know, get to bed at, at a normal time. Don't do things that are going to be too exciting or too energizing, hmm. you know, so kind of, you know, go for the middle, more of equanimity, like a relaxed evening, mm -hmm. uh, the foods that you eat, probably not, not too much and things that aren't going to be too, um, rajasic and yoga. It's like things that fire you up or set or, um, tamasic would slow you down. So something in the middle, like a light meal and get to bed at a normal time and then wake, wake yourself up in a last third of your sleep cycle. So, you know, you know how much you sleep. So in that last third, you gently wake yourself up. So it's not a blaring alarm or anything like that. And so it's really important for you to maintain or to establish a, a, at least a short period of um, waking consciousness. Okay. So you don't want to be so groggy that, you know, boy, I really want to go back to sleep, but you don't want to, start sipping on your coffee, you know, right. where it's like you're revving yourself up. So again, in the middle, um, you know, it's, it's important to, uh, like, if you can, you know, uh, empty your bladder, empty your bowels, right. if you can do that, because that can disturb you. Mm. Um, and, uh, and basically then is that, you know, you, you get into the, the tank. Uh, and then if you cycle back into your cycle mm -hmm. um it seems like uh, at least the other people i've introduced to this technique it's about 80 percent of the time that you'll wake up into a lucid space wow. you know i mean sometimes it can be kind of disconcerting to people if you haven't ever had like a lucid dream or something sure. like that so you might just flip flip right back out um and so you know there's i guess some caution or some training there mm -hmm. or you know opportunity to to coach people on that maybe just having floated previously not in this yeah space, well definitely definitely i would say i mean with this pilot it's just like i a variable that i think is important is for people to have you know regular float experience mm -hmm. and uh, for the pilot i say at least like three floats within the last year 
better mm -hmm. to have somebody who's a seasoned floater. Yeah. You know, so they can discern any differences. And, and, and uh, go ahead. That that led me to uh, the question I've been wanting to ask for quite a while now has has been you've worked with other people and and have you've been able to replicate this with other people? Yeah, and it seems like uh, well, way back at the medical college, I ran a few people through, and they had similar experiences. So it doesn't. Okay. So it seems like it doesn't matter what you believe, and so that's why mm -hmm. I w I think it's more of a mechanistic technique rather mm -hmm. than uh, Stephen Labarge, the monomic. So it doesn't matter what you're doing, mm -hmm. what you're setting your mind up to, to to think or believe, mm -hmm. as long as you fulfill these mechanistic variables. You know, sleep cycle. A period of calm wakefulness, uh, entering the tank, uh, recycling back into your sleep cycle. It seems like uh, more likely than not that this will happen, you know. But you did describe mnemonic techniques previously. Is that in the same? Do you encourage people to use anything like that with this particular system? Uh, to, to become conscious in, in the dreamlike state? Well, I. Uh, you know, like setting setting your attention. I guess I would go. I would say that like setting an intention of one. You know, like maybe an expectation mm -hmm. can be helpful. But I don't think you really need to. You know, do much more than that for inducing okay. these lucid dreams. I mean, that would be another subject for discussion. I mean, there may. I think the monomic techniques can be helpful in floating, whether it's for this awesome or or elsewise. But yeah, I, I think they're not necessary for this. Now maybe, but maybe like, but maybe a little bit of setting an intention, because sure, why would if, people if you want are to do conscious it? Conscious for a little bit of time, maybe maybe that is the time. But yeah, like like you say, but it sounds like that's not even a required part of no. it. Which is again phenomenal. If it really is like that, if it's um, uh, what was the word that you used? It, if it automatically happens like that, that um, the mechanistic. If it's mechanistic. That, that's really fascinating. Uh, the only way that I've ever had lucid dreams is through the mnemonic practice. It's like, it, it, um, it's been on my mind for a long time, you know, yeah, of, of right. setting this up, setting it up, right. setting it up. And then floating, people say it's like a meditation on steroids. You know, it just, boom, it just slingshots you into as if yeah. you've been practicing meditation for so long. And it's so interesting that, that it could also work for, for lucid dreaming this way as well. That's yeah. It's uh, so, pretty cool, the effects it has on our brains, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I have something to say about the meditation, too, because I, um, I think that it's... Because uh, I know people say this, and I've even I've been guilty of saying this, but, you know, I hear people say, oh, it's meditation on steroids, etc. Yeah. But, you know, floating and meditation are not equivalent. I mean, at least from my perspective. Mm. I mean, you can, you can meditate when you float, Please. for sure, but it's not the same thing. And, uh, and... Anyhow, that's that's a, another reason why I'm interested in floating, and this is more, I think, uh, in my non-early morning floats, it's it's more supportive of my meditation practice because I've been meditating mm -hmm. longer than floating, like 40 years or so, mm -hmm. and I feel like it's a complement uh, to my practice, and I really, I mean, I feel that's kind of part of a big part of my mission is like, well building a bridge between a meditative community and a floating community because i think there's so much potential there but i think and because i i am in a meditation community a great one in in the twin cities area and uh i know people who are who have sat or are sitting for like 10 20 30 40 years and it's like well what's really happening for you not to say that that it that there aren't positive effects but i'm thinking like well i feel fortunate because i've been 
also meditating, but I also have access to the float tank. And some of the things that we talk about, like in our meditation groups, you know, our Dharma studies, is like, well, I know what they're like firsthand because of the experiences I have in a floating, where a lot of people who have been floating or meditating for so many years don't. Yeah. And I and for example, I feel like uh like it's very easy, and this may be because of the combination of floating and meditation, to uh to drop to these states where um the things that we why why people meditate like moving away from um uh, aversion and greed you know suffering like in the floating experience for me that just quiets down huh. and like and I can watch my mind do its thing and I don't have to struggle with thought I don't have to push them away I don't have to grab oh, onto them it's such a relief you know and 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 circling back with the lucid dream and I talked about the non or the non-dream lucid state and sleep uh, mm-hmm. you can meditate while you're in a lucid dream <laughs> and you can do other things too I mean seriously you can I mean talk about what? <laughs> yeah so I mean if if uh, floating is is meditation on steroids and again I wouldn't say that right. but then uh when, but uh Lucid dream, uh, meditating in a lucid dream while floating is on super <laughs> because you are really uh, in a very subtle and uh, refined state, or at least that's the potential. Uh, and in the Tibetans, there was a, a form of Tibetan Buddhism that um, uh, a big part of their practice is called dream and sleep yoga. And this, I figure, I mean, after I read more about it. It's just like, well, this is what I've been doing for like 36 years with the, the tank. And the reason why they practice dream and sleep yoga, and basically their dream yoga is, is learning to uh, wake up in a dream, like an, have a lucid dream, and then to manipulate it, you know, to change it while you're in it, uh-huh. and then to affect the outside world, you know, from inside the lucid dream. Huh. And then they also practice on creating lucidity in the non- dream state and that's supposed to be even more refined and their purpose for that besides as a spiritual practice is uh, preparation for death is what they say because they say that when um, we and again as a scientist well I don't know but on the other hand it's just like well why not practice these things um, because it can help you wake up in your normal waking life you know if, if, even if mm. you're not if you don't uh, ascribe to the uh, to the idea of like uh uh the transition and and to the death stage. sure but, but it um, is practicing consciousness right being present yeah so they they're saying that when we die we get there's a, a lot of stuff going on we get very confused but hmm. um they say if you have at least seven lucid dreams in your life that you'll be able to uh self-realize upon dying you know hmm. you will recognize that you're dying and you won't be confused and that that intrigues me because um, uh-huh. <laughs> I am interested in because um, we're all you know we're all gonna make that transition yeah so why not practice it when when you have the opportunity uh, in fact I had a well I am particularly interested in you know these states of consciousness that's why I'm interested in meditation lucid dreaming the non lucid dreaming wakefulness but also the preparation for death and I had a uh, an experience where I was, when I had the, the float tank in my apartment, 
and was doing the awesome technique for a while. Uh, and I, I probably was, didn't float for a couple of weeks. I got in the float tank and I had this experience where um, I had this image of a woman's face that appeared to me. Maybe you heard this story before, but, it, you know, maybe like 10 inches away from me. And at the same time, I knew this person had, had passed on, had died. And I thought it was my mom's mom who was uh, Busha. We were in a Polish family, and she was like in her 90s. And I thought I would comfort my mom because there was this palpable huh. sense of peace that was just pervading the space. I don't know. It must have been 10 to 20 minutes I stayed in that space. Oh, wow. And I heard a knock on the door, and I, I got out of the tank. It was my boss from work. My supervisor said to call home. I called home. And it was my mom who had just passed on. Oh, wow. And she was like, it was unexpected. It was like, she is 52 years old. Oh, so wow. So it's like, um, it's like, you know, what's that? So I went kind of like into shock, like, well, that can't be my mom. But I just had the experience in the tank that of someone appearing to me who had just died, you know? And uh, so it was like, alternately, like, well, what's that about? But also like emotionally, like, you know, oh my God, you know, I, how can that even be? I mean, you could say the scientists, I mean, well, that's coincidence. Maybe I picked up sure. something from my mom, but to have that happen, you know, at the same time that my mom was dying, who yeah. unexpectedly in her 50s, and then subsequent floats, you know, in a wow. couple weeks after that, and in dreams, it was like I was having conversations with my mother who was talking about the death experience, and we were comparing I, like the float experience for the death experience. I told you early on how I had this experience, like moving through these tunnels, like the near death experience. Yeah. And she was saying, yeah, you know, that's kind of what it was like. And she said, uh, in the, in the, in these dream conversations, she said, yeah. um, Oh, she got really small and went into the center of her head and waited for, you know, others to come and help her out on her way. Oh, wow. And, and my mom was a pretty simple person, not educated. So she wouldn't talk. With uh, she didn't have a lot of descriptors, but sure. uh, there were different. She, you know, she there was a couple of weeks where she would talk about her experiences, and it became less and less like it was my mom, like the personality, and more and more like some other being, like she was shedding her personality. Uh -huh. Then there was one last or one of the last conversations. She said, "Well, if a soul wants to have have influence on the earth, it has to remain so many parsecs." And I thought, I could have heard that term, but it's an actual astronomical unit. And then, and it was like she was gone. There was no more conversations, huh. nothing with my mom. And I know that the Tibetans say, well, death is not like a, you know, like a, a thing that happens, like uh, you're flipping a light switch and it's off and on. They say it takes consciousness like 40 days, I think, to transition. Interesting. So it's kind of interesting because I like this, these experiences with my mom. And having similar experiences of my own in the tank. So anyhow, there's a part of me, you know, there's a scientist says, well, again, this could all be coincidence. This could all be happening in the mind, which it yeah. could be. But on the other hand, it's like, well, isn't this peculiar? And I know yeah. there's some researchers out there, some notable researchers who are saying that that there is a such there is non-local consciousness, that it's not limited to the brain. Hmm. You know, that the brain could be producing it and it could be a receiver, but that's not the only place where consciousness occurs. And these, these scientists now that I told you about in the, this conference that I was at yeah. um, are 
thinking some of them are certainly they're open to that possibility that consciousness is not something that's contained or produced only by the brain. Maybe it's something more that could be explained more in terms of the laws of physics, like it could be more like a field kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I don't know, but, you know, having had that experience um, is something that kind of um, encourages me to explore these states of consciousness, you know, further and see, like, well, <laughs> oh. what's out there? That's, a, that's an incredible what's story, by the way. That is absolutely incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Um, sure. And I've, I've actually never thought of death as not being, you know, similar to a light switch. And how fascinating you think about, you know, creating life approximately, you know, nine or ten months and then right. and then birth. Right. Uh, that that part is, a you know, feels like a light switch, the birth. Right. Even though my wife would argue that is not the case either. But interesting that death, too, there's that that. OK, that person is gone. But that person also then needs time to transition. Yeah. Uh, right. Beyond as well. That's that's fascinating. So that uh, makes sense. And right? it, another thing that sticks in my mind is she said she got small, very small, went to the center of her head. And I know there's some theorists out there who say, well, you know that um, while floating, the the uh, pineal gland is producing DMT. You know, and that uh, uh, I don't know. I, you know, I I have a, a I have a connection with Dennis McKenna, hmm. who's an ethnobotanist, and he works with um, the DMT and, and mm-hmm. plants. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking that something, you know, I don't know, but, you know, I think that would be worthwhile exploring is like that something similar could happen while floating, that there could be that release of DMT. And oh, I think wow. what's just really peculiar that my mom would say, or my quote unquote, whoever, whatever was happening that right. mm-hmm. center of the head. Well, what's at the center of the head? You know, the pineal gland. Right. Um, oh, wow. But that's speculation. You know. Yeah, oh, sure. of course, of course. Uh, Richard, there is so much more I want to talk to you about. <laughs> and I think we have to call it. I feel, feel like we've had a nice full circle conversation here. Um, and uh, I want to invite you on again to, to delve more into this. I'd also love to learn more about uh, your time uh, doing research as well. I'd love to hear some some stories as well. But there's so much more to discuss. Um but uh, I, I just want to thank you for being on the show tonight. Thank you so much. Um, can you, um, again, give out your website for anybody who's interested? And is there yeah. any timeline or anything that people need to respond by? Uh, well, no timeline, because right now it's, a, like I said, a casual pilot. And, you know, we're hoping to get, I'd like to get 30 people or so. Right now, I've, I think there's about eight people that have, come, that have done the pilot. Um, okay. So, yeah, it's uh, just my name, you know, richardbonk.com, and if you can't find that, you know, go to Art of the Flow. Yeah. But it really is a pleasure, Dylan, and I've got, I mean, I've got more, I've got more to, <laughs> to say, uh, other experiences and, uh, and, and thoughts about these experiences, what, what, what it means, the potential of, of, of this kind of work, um, so I, I, I could tell there's a lot more there and I'm excited to, to hear it and, and share back and forth. This has been a blast. Thank you so much. Oh, <laughs> you're really welcome so much. It. Really, thank you, Dylan, for supporting the float community and everything that you've been doing. Thanks. My pleasure. Um, in closing here, I do want to give just a few thank yous before we go. I want to thank Float Away 
Floatway is making float tanks in the USA now. They're not just based out of the UK. They're making float tanks in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They're making the largest circular float pool on the market named the Serenity. So if you want to go big, uh, Floatway's got you covered. But uh, they also have some some uh, in-between size as well, including all the way down to what we have, which works great for us at the float shop. The Tranquility float tank uh, works great for us. I uh, talked earlier about getting into a relationship with the people you buy from. Uh, Justin, uh, excuse me, uh, Colin and Ginny are amazing people and definitely kind-hearted in it for the right reasons and, and able to, to help you out. And, and they're going to be there for you if anything, you know, any any repairs need to happen, anything like that. Floataway.com is where you want to go. Let them know that we sent you. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I just so appreciate that you want to tune in every week and hear what we've got to say. It's been a really special episode. I think a lot of times we were so intent on talking about the, the float center specifically. This has been such a joy just to talk about the float experience and what's going on in the brain. I want to do more of this. This is fun for me. Hopefully you guys enjoy this as well. I imagine you you have. Thanks to our Patreon supporters for supporting us. That means a lot to us as well. Uh, we are available for consulting. Back to that uh, whole running the business part, artofthefloat.com forward slash consulting if you'd like some assistance with setting up your business. And as I oftentimes say, it's not, um, you know, if you don't go through me, that's fine, but do get a consultant, get somebody who's been through all of this uh, to assist you with opening your float center. And of course, thanks to Kim Hannon for taking our show notes every week. Appreciate it so much. And uh, gosh, I think the only other thing I have to say is remember, there's an infinite amount to find in the presence of nothing. So spend some time there. We'll see you next week.